This is an ABC podcast. It's not the same as their father used to be around and then he puts the food, breakfast for them. And then I don't have a choice. I, I used to tell them, you just pray and get whatever you we have. If you don't have food, don't worry, just go to school. A few of them were thrown out by their um, daughter-in-laws and sons after their spouses were gone. So when the son married and the father figure was no longer around, in some cases, the mother-in-law was sent to a shack. Pacific widowed women are not only supporting their own families economically and socially, they are supporting the extended families of their late husbands and maintaining his place within those systems and then the places of their children. In the Pacific, there is no such thing as social security. We support our families and our families support us. Many married women are reliant on their husbands for financial stability. And when the husband is in charge of the money, many women don't have a strong understanding of their financial circumstances. And if their husband dies, even seemingly wealthy women can be plunged into poverty. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about financial vulnerability for women in the Pacific. Losing your husband is devastating, but a sad reality some have to face. While mortality rates are down and life expectancies are up across the region, wives are still more likely to outlive their husbands. Susan Fumapa and her husband were raising five children in Papua New Guinea when he passed away suddenly from COVID-19. It was something that I didn't expect because he wasn't sick, he was healthy. It, it was, I mean, we were very best friends and we had a very strong, good relationship. It was a healthy one. He was sick and I thought it, it will be okay, it will be fine. I'm trying my best to help him. Say, don't worry, we will go back home. And was giving me false hope and assurance, and then all of a sudden he just passed away. At the time, she had two adult children, one who was studying theology, and the three younger children who were still in school. Although Susan has a degree in theological studies and was working as a teacher, suddenly losing her husband plunged them into financial difficulty. A life. My father has gone away. My house is running short of food every day. I'm earning 300 kina for a fortnight and I got 200 kina alone. And you can't believe just with 100 kina, it's so painful that sometimes it's not the same as their father used to be around and then he puts the food, breakfast for them. They have to get up early in the morning and I don't have a choice. I just told them. I, I used to tell them, you just pray and get whatever you we have. If you don't have food, don't worry, just go to school. And this is the hardest part of the life that I am going through. Fortunately, Susan was able to keep her job running a college campus for a church. Before that, I also resigned from the church, saying that the end of December, I will go back home. But then later when the church sees that uh, saw that my uh, hubby passed away, the church hierarchy told me to withdraw my resignation and to go back to work. 
and look after our children. It sounds like you have competing struggles, finding time to care for your five children and keeping your job to survive financially. How hard is that? It's really hard. But uh, this is Papua New Guinea. We have a little bit of land around the college area that we can plant. My dad and to help us and the little that I gave, I provide uh, basics like salt, soap and oil and all these things. That's Susan Fumapa, a college principal and mother of five whose husband died of COVID-19. Jenny Yateke's husband was the new Vanuatu minister and member of parliament, Morkin Stevens Yateka. Jenny is educated and worked for more than a decade with the Department of Provincial Affairs, but when her husband became a leader, she stopped working to raise their three children. We had a very good family. We lived a very good life just before my husband died. I enjoyed being a leader's wife, only being at home as a mother all the time. But then later when my husband left us, uh, he died in 2016, we had a lot of financial problems because uh, my husband had a lot of uh, loans with the banks. You didn't know about all that? I didn't know. I didn't know we had loans in the bank, but I didn't know of what amount they were. Did you and your husband discuss your family finances during your marriage? Um, no, because he did this all by himself, maybe because I wasn't working, I was always at home, and he made all uh, decisions himself. Two years after her husband died, Jane found out she was in more debt than she realized when the bank came to repossess her truck. They, they came in with the police. That's when I, I knew we had loans that were very high. The police, my goodness. Yes, they came in with the police. To serve a letter. Did you have any income in those two years? No, I didn't have any income. I had two sons who went working. They were just at home, but my daughter was working. But the income that she had couldn't, just couldn't meet the amount of loan that was in the bank. So, and myself, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money uh, just to put uh, food on the table or just to meet some of my needs that I wanted to use money for. How were you surviving from day to day in those two years? I was living with my two sons. My two sons, uh, they had uh, their, what we call, they lived a de facto relationship with uh, their women. And we lived through the little money that they get from the salaries, the women that my sons were living with. In an effort to save her family home and the other properties her husband had bought, she tried to fight the bank. Firstly, I took the bank to court, but then later on decided to withdraw the case because I thought if I didn't have enough evidence, then I would lose all my property. That is why I decided I should withdraw the case and then renegotiate with the bank. And then the bank gave us some negotiations which we agreed to and we sold two of our properties and I asked the bank if the bank could give the other land which was just an empty land, a property, 
to me and my children to survive on that land. Did you get to keep your home? No, I sold my home and I sold my apartments. Wow, that must have been pretty, really hard for you and your kids. Yes, it was hard, but it was something that we had to do to to serve to serve ourselves. Mm. It sounds like, you know, you had a really good life when you you know when your husband is alive and working, which changed drastically. How tough was it for you to, and your kids to adapt? We adapted this life very easily because even though we had a very good life, we were just living as simple, simple people, simple people of the community. And that is why we got adapted into that life very easily. After my husband died, uh, maybe it was about two to three months when we were, you know, uh, we had to rethink and see how we could we could um, we could build ourselves, uh, and to build ourselves is to come back to the normal life of just being simple people. That's Jane Yateka, the widow of Vanuatu politician Morkin Stevens Yateka. Now, her children help to support her financially, and she has a volunteer role as president of the Port Vila City Council of Women. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. Staying in Vanuatu, Dr. Andrew Nakeel Thomas recently released research for the Vanuatu Women's Association that backs up many of the anecdotal experiences she has been seeing widows face. When the spouse passes away and the spouse is actually the main income earner and the wife is, you know, the manageress at home, there's no more income. And because Vanuatu doesn't have a social security system for, you know, marginalized groups, we have financial distress for the mama widows itself. So uh, a few of them were thrown out by their um, uh, daughter-in-laws and sons after their spouses were gone. So so when the son uh, married and the father figure was no longer around and the, um, the son's spouse was very, very uh, dominant and bossy and all that and didn't like the mother-in-law, uh, in, in some cases, the mother-in-law was sent to a shack. So her original house built by her spouse was now occupied by the uh, son and the daughter-in-law. What about cultural ob- obligations? Why does it have to come to this when in the Pacific we are all about family? That's right. In, in the rural society, we still have, you know, the extended uh, kinship system to look after somebody who's elderly. But when we talk about people in the urban centers, that's a totally different story because uh, you know, everyone has to go to work to, to earn money to survive. And there's no, um, you know, available help to, to look after somebody who's elderly or somebody who's disabled, especially uh, if, if they are one of the uh, widows themselves. So moving the, the widow out of her husband's house to a shack just meant that there were, you know, relationship breakdown between uh, the daughter-in-law and the son not recognizing that, um, you know, you, you can't do that to your mother. Mm. Is the fact that it's seen as the husband's house and not their home, is that a structural problem for women that makes them vulnerable to homelessness if their husband dies? 
definitely because in a lot of situations, as I mentioned, if the wife is actually the housewife and she's doing unpaid work at home and the husband is actually the sole breadwinner, there's not a lot of transparency in terms of information on how much the husband's earning, how much he has saved in the bank and how much is saved for rainy days. Cultural obligation also forces um, a woman to, uh, to be deprived. So, as I mentioned, there's a matrilineal system, there's a patrilineal system. So, matrilineal women um, are cared for, um, they uh, transmit um, uh, heritage uniformly to their children, while a patrilineal system, the woman comes to the man's village, uh, she uses her productive and reproductive labor to enhance the man's status, and when her husband dies, then she's required to go back to her matrikin with uh, literally nothing because she's not recognized in, in that uh, patrilineal society. She's only there to support the husband. And so the children that, you know, they have would now be inheriting whatever properties that belong to the husband. But the mother, in, in a lot of situations, would need to go back to, to her matrikin, to her natal village with, with uh, very little Hmm. What needs to happen to change the situation for widows? Firstly, the government must recognize that we have marginalized groups in uh, Vanuatu. Unless the Vanuatu government establishes a social security system to help mama widows, to help single mothers, to help people with disabilities, to help youth who are unemployed, we will continue to have social problems in Vanuatu. In the urban areas, when those marginalized groups have no access to money to run businesses or to survive, then you have a lot of social problems such as stealing. And then you have other social problems like prostitution happening because the mother is unable to find money to put food on the table. So the only thing she can do now is sex work to earn money. So there's moral issues, but there's also an obligation for the government to recognize that You know, this is a group of people who cannot be employed in the formal employment sector, but as a government, we have to provide for them to also have access to money so they can run their businesses instead of having to do sex work because there's no other available opportunities. Do you know any governments in the Pacific that have a system to strive for that can be like a model system for other Pacific Island countries that are recognizing these issues and have a system in place to protect women? I, I can only think about, you know, Australia and New Zealand having a social security system, but in the Pacific itself, we haven't actually done a, a thorough research to see whether, you know, widows in Samoa, widows in Solomon, widows in PNG, have similar problems to Vanuatu. That's also a gap that somebody needs to go out there and do an extensive uh, research to identify whether there are similarities and differences. What is some advice for women to help themselves not to be in positions of vulnerability? Firstly, is to learn uh, financial literacy. Um, and secondly, is um, yes, the spouse is no longer there, but to a system and, and they should continue with, you know, finding whatever they can do to survive. So if they're doing 20 Vatu, they need to continue with 20 Vatu, but not only regarding 20 Vatu as something that will sustain them daily, but also considering what can I do to actually improve my lot in, in life for the future. And, and this is where 
you know, a collective collaboration between both the widows and the marginalized groups and the government need to be considered. This can happen to anyone when, you know, a spouse passes away. Should women in comfortable positions as well also consider what could happen if their husband passed away? Definitely. I think this is a big problem in Vanuatu. We don't consider the unforeseen. We just wait and then when our other half passes away, then we recognize, oh, I'm now in a very dire situation. And this is where financial literacy and, you know, the ability to save is important for women to consider putting money aside for, for a rainy day. And well, we have the Vanuatu National Providence Fund providing that assistance through the VNPF contributions, and they have been increasing their special debt benefit um, to you know a, a higher figure now. But that only applies to workers. But we still have a lot of mamas who are actually in the informal sector. So it's important that we consider a way to actually assist them. And we need to instill in you know all the mothers that you won't have your husband there forever. He might actually become sick and he might die tomorrow. What are you doing to ensure that uh, you're not left in a, a dire situation? Are you saving money? So those are some of the critical questions that we need to make women understand that they need to cater for, for their well-being uh, if there's no one around to help them. That's Dr. Andrew Nakale Thomas, whose research for the One or Two Widows Association is helping to paint a clear picture of the financial impacts that widows face. Divorce can also impact the women's financial circumstances. Salita Kaniele was working in her home country, Tuvalu, and her husband was working in Fiji when their marriage broke down. From there, I, I see a very bad uh, future for, for me and my children because I never expect that to happen to me. So I was, uh, even I resigned from work here in Tuvalu because I wanted to stay back to fix our family. Even though her family and her career were in Tuvalu, she moved to Fiji so that even if they weren't together, her children could be raised by both of their parents. And that's how I ended up uh, staying there unemployed and really had a hard time with finances. And <laughs> I mean, for my own, but with my family, they can support me somehow, I mean, in some areas, but not to, to what I want for myself and my children. Hmm. What impact did this have on your life? It really impacted me individually as a woman because I never, (laughs) I I can say that I'm, I grew up to be a very good girl. But when I faced that problem of divorce, I really feel lonely and like, I'm not shy to share this, but it really impacted my life as a woman. Like, I mean, for me, it really, in our community, like, you know, like, if you're from the Pacific, it really, like, your reputation, it spoils your reputation as a girl, as a woman. Even though my family really supported me. And... For my career, I'm a really, really bright student. 
I really hope for a bright future. But because of what has happened, I I kept in my mind that I had to be there for my children. So I ended up uh, making a choice to, to stay there, even though I can't work in Fiji. I had to stay there for the sake of my children. Selida has a postgraduate diploma in economics, and at the time, she was in the early stages of a promising career. And because she could not work in Fiji, her children had to live with their father. Now they are teenagers and their father has migrated to New Zealand and Salita is back in Tuvalu building her career. And although it was difficult, she is proud of both her children and hopeful for the opportunities they have. I think I made the right decision because I always think that they didn't choose to be here. They didn't choose that kind of life. I really take courage and uh, to work together with the father and my family, of course, to build a good future for them. That's Selita Caniele from Tuvalu. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. While it might seem like these financial vulnerabilities only happen to women living in the Pacific, women in the diaspora are also at risk. Tangaloatele, Dr. Peggy Furban Dunlop is an emeritus professor of Pacific Studies at Auckland University of Technology and has lived most of her life between Samoa and New Zealand. Her daughter belongs to a group of Pacific Island mothers who have something tragic in common. I was with them a couple of weeks ago at their group and I looked around and actually eight of her group of women friends that they've set up this little group have been widowed in their 40s with young children, some of them, and some with older children. But it goes back to the fact that they have been widowed. It's In each case, it's been totally unexpected and quite shocking um, thing to have happened. Their husbands also have been in their 40s. And I think a phenomenon across New Zealand, again, is that Pacific men in the 40s age group are are very vulnerable, you know, quite high mortality rates are starting to happen in that age group. She says one of the reasons widows in the diaspora are so financially vulnerable is because of their obligations to family back home. Pacific widowed women are not only supporting their own families economically and socially, they are supporting their extended families. They are also supporting the extended families of their late husbands, you know, maintaining their place and maintaining his place within those systems and then the places of their children in the future within those particular systems as as well. And then if you add the Pacific worldview of family and faith and community, then there are church and faith obligations as well and community obligations. So, it's not simply, I guess you could say it's an economic role, how much money have they got, but it isn't only money, it's time and how they invest it, the money that they have. But there are also cultural expectations, a further cultural view about women's roles, which I have sort of been thinking about, because in my daughter's group of of eight widows, they're all in their 40s or early 50s. None of them have remarried because they've spent their time, if you like, trying to make a secure future for their own, you know, families like a house and schooling and looking after their own families. But also running through all that, there's also this 
norm that, you know, that women are not sexual beasts, if you like, that men can remarry, you know, it's fine for a male to marry, yeah. but for a, if, if, a, if a Samoan widow sort of remarries, she sort of looked, uh, you know, a little bit sideways in a sense, mm. you know, why is she doing this? They're sort of forgetting that marriage is not solely about sex. You know, a lot of marriage is companionship, it's sharing the loads, it's planning together. So all those things are all placed again onto a woman. Mm. Mm. What's interesting about this conversation is that it's very much centered around marriage. Um, how reliant are women on marriage for financial survival in the Pacific? I think uh, my mother, okay, my mother, and now we're talking a long time ago, when her father died and the, the law or the rule was that you go with your children back to your natal village. And that's what she did. She went back to her natal village, went back to her and to the care and protection of her family. And so in a sense, she had a lot of care and protection for her children. Amongst the Pacific in New Zealand at the moment is the most startling thing to me a few years ago when I started looking at this was that Pacific women's educational progress and success was higher than Pacific males. And that persists right through to university education, if you like, and usually educational achievement, you know, leads to, you know, opens up opportunities. And so on that particular group of women, which I've been talking about, each of those women had high powered jobs so did their husbands, but to succeed in New Zealand, they actually needed a dual income to buy sort of a house to provide accommodation for their children and the sorts of education they wanted for their children. Mm. And you have worked and studied throughout the Pacific, including my country, Papua New Guinea. What similarities and differences do you see in terms of women's status or position in society? A widowed woman or a divorced woman is in a highly vulnerable position economically, socially, but also, if I may add, there is a cultural element to that as well. So she's vulnerable and probably because of the communal support systems, we often think of communal support systems or, you know, church and community as being a total strength for women, but at the same time, or for solo parents, but at the same time, they increase vulnerability because you have to play your part in those particular support systems. I, I have women friends in New Zealand who, who lived in the main city and when their husband passed away, they have actually left the city and gone to uh, a suburb or really gone to a rural town where they do not enjoy those support systems, but nor do they have to support them themselves in a way which is commensurate, if you like, with their what social status and economic status and cultural status. So it's sort of a double-edged sword, our, our communal systems. What differences are there with rural communities compared with the urban dwellers and urban communities? Well, as explained to me by by this person, 
who had lived in Auckland, there was just so much going on in the Pacific space in terms of expectations, family celebrations, in terms of church celebrations, expectations, and also at the time, a lot of advice given to her about how she should act as a a single woman and as a mother. That's Emeritus Professor Tangaloa Tele, Dr. Peggy Philburn Dunlop from Auckland University of Technology. Thanks to all my guests today. Tangaloa Tele, Dr. Peggy, Salita Kaniele, Dr. Andrina Kale Thomas, Jane Yiteka, and Susan Fumapa. Thank you so much for joining me. Hilda Wayne for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia a weekly show by Pacific Islands Women for Pacific Islands Women, where we get together to talk about the issues that are important to us. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. In the Pacific, just search for Sisters Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Australia, you can listen to Sisters Let's Talk on the ABC Listen app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, we'll revisit the issue of HIV in the Pacific. Who is most vulnerable to the illness and how is it impacting women? It all is about education and just trying to make women value themselves more or see themselves from a different angle. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunsner. Our commissioning editor is Ilaria Walker. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungimu next time. Uh-huh.